Praise God. Hallelujah. You may be seated. I was, uh, Brother Dylan and I had the privilege of ministering together in Oregon a couple of weeks ago. And he said, when I was done, we were eating, he said, well, I saw something today I've never seen before. I said, what's that? He said, I saw you have a Bible and some notes in the pulpit with you. Uh, they're here, but they're intimidating me. I told Brother Morgan in the hallway, I passed him over there a few minutes, I said, I'm so happy you're the one following me. He looked at me, I said, because you don't get nervous. You need the interpretation of that? The problem I've got is that uh, there is, as usual, way more to the subject than there's time to talk about. So I have to rely on the Holy Ghost today to sift through this material and make sure that the only stuff that I invest time in covering is the stuff that he wants you to receive today. Praise God. I, um, I got up early this morning. I just got on my Bible software and brought up this subject, went to the Greek word so I could see the different translations and just read every verse in the New Testament on it all over again. Just I wanted it in my spirit. And then the Lord messed me up because he gave me a bunch of new stuff I had never seen before. And I don't know what to do with all this, so praise God. Let's start, uh, no, for example's sake, with Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses here, if you don't mind, brother. Um, praise God. Romans 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Next verse. Which he had promised afore up by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. By whom we have, we have received grace. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. Verse 5 again, please. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for or for the purpose of to the end that for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. We receive grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Among whom ye also ye among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Next verse. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. You will note, if you haven't already noticed it, that every epistle Paul wrote began, began with this apostolic blessing of impartation. This is not a greeting. This was Paul expressing what he considered to be the two most important elements in a Christian's life. Various epistles deal with various subjects. But Paul consistently started every epistle he wrote except the book of Hebrews. I believe he wrote Hebrews, but the only evidence to me that would cause me to doubt is that after he consistently did this in every other epistle or book he wrote, Hebrews does not start like that. But in every other epistle that Paul wrote, the only consistent things he said was, grace and peace from the Father be upon you. He, he ended most of his epistles with another prayer for you to have grace. Now, when he wrote to a church, he started with grace and peace from the Father. But in both times he wrote to Timothy and in the book of Titus, he added something to these humans. Grace, mercy, and peace from the Father. Now, John used this terminology only in 2 John and in the book of Revelation. In fact, to the, to the seven churches, including the two that were in danger of losing their candlestick, their place. To the seven churches, John started his epistle, or his book, Revelation 1-7, with grace and peace from him who was and is and is to come. Peter, in both of his epistles, wrote it this way, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And then if you'll go with me, go please to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, you'll find the last words of the Bible. Revelation twenty-two twenty-one. 21. No, Revelation twenty-two twenty-one. Sorry. It's really tough on a guy that does scriptures for me because I don't know where I'm going. I'm waiting to hear where I'm going, and so I can only give it as I get it. Revelation twenty two twenty one. Hallelujah. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Last words of the Bible. Now, I told you yesterday, the home missionaries that were here, I was born in a Pentecostal church, UPC church. My first Sunday of life, my mother took me to a UPC church. 
I've been in a UPC church all my life except for my four years of college. There was no church in that town, and there is now a church in that town because I started it. But other than that, I've been in UPC all my life. And let me tell you something I have discovered. I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. After having gone to church in California, Tennessee, Northwest Florida, Northeast Florida, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Rhode Island by the time I was 18, I can say with some degree of experience that the average person in the UPC even today doesn't have a clue what grace is. I can't tell you how much of a tragedy that is. Grace to us is kind of like talking to, calling God Father. If you call God Father, you're a Trinitarian. If you talk about grace, you're a fundamentalist. Well, Jesus is a Trinitarian because that was his favorite term to refer to God, was Father. But most of us can't call God Father because we're not comfortable with it. And grace and peace comes from the Father. And without a revelation of the Father, but to us there is but one God, the Father. Without a revelation of the fatherhood of God. Without us becoming comfortable with calling God Father. We have no source for grace and peace. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> now, don't let Brother Dylan fool you. He's smiling now because he knows what's coming. But he wasn't smiling in Oregon. <laughs> he wasn't smiling in Oregon. Praise God. Let me very briefly tell you that when the average fundamentalist says that you're saved by grace and not by works, he has no clue what he's talking about. First of all, what he's really calling, what he's calling grace, he really means mercy. This is not original with me, but I'll share with you something I've used many times ever since I heard it. It's, it's awesome. And that is, mercy is when God does not give you what you do deserve. Therefore, in the context in which the Baptists use it, we are saved by mercy. We're saved by mercy. When you are forgiven, forgiveness does not change your life here and now. Repentance does not change your life here and now. Because the, 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 immediate, the immediate consequence of repentance is forgiveness. And both the Hebrew and the Greek word translated forgive in the majority of cases means to be pardoned. And when you're pardoned, it means you have committed a crime, you've been arrested, you've been tried, you've been convicted, you've been sentenced. But somebody with the authority to do so has determined that you will not have to serve the sentence. 
So when you and I are forgiven of our sins, the only thing that changes is my eternal destination. It doesn't fix anything with me here and now. By definition. It doesn't matter what my opinion is or your opinion is about it. This is the definition. This is exactly what the word means. It does not mean something that we've traditionally made it mean. Because traditionally in Pentecost, if you repent, you're supposed to be perfect. You're not supposed to have any more problems. You're not supposed to have any more struggles. There's not supposed to be anything wrong with you anymore. Now, there are verses in the Bible we quote we don't really believe. How about this one? 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Could I see the hand of anybody here that's experienced that? Well, praise God for you, sister. You're the only one in the house, not me. i got to tell you, there's some old things still living in me. Not everything's new in me. That's God's goal. I haven't got there yet. That's what He's telling me. That's a promise. That's what He's telling me He's willing to do. Just because I've repented and been baptized or received the Holy Ghost doesn't mean I got there yet. I'm not there yet. Oh, Jesus. This isn't supposed to be this hard today. Maybe I shouldn't have taught yesterday. I've got a little bit of resistance from some of that yesterday. Hallelujah. I could go scripture by scripture. If I have to consent. You know what the word faith means, don't you? It means to be persuaded by the facts. That's what the Greek word means. To be persuaded by the facts. It doesn't mean some kind of, you know... uh, uh, What was the word I'm looking for here? Frivolous, uh, mind, uh, uh, no, no, no real um, depth to it. It's an emotional thing. For us, faith is an emotional thing. Biblically, faith is a mental thing before it's a spiritual thing. It's not an emotional thing. Faith is not something you feel. Faith is something you've been persuaded of. That you're convinced of the truthfulness of it. You can't have faith one minute and not have it the next. Emotions may work like that, but faith doesn't work like that. It Biblically, faith doesn't work like that. Of course, we Pentecostals are emotional junkies, so we don't really understand that mental side, do we? And we promote people being emotional junkies. I didn't say spiritual junkies, emotional junkies. Because we play on the emotion, and we work with the emotion to get people to come emotionally, and we we, we try to get them saved emotionally, and we try to keep them saved emotionally, and it wears us out, doesn't it, brother? It wears us out to try to get people saved and keep them saved when when your whole methodology and the whole concept is emotional. Faith's not emotional. Faith is first of all mental. And then second of all, it's spiritual. In fact, 
Faith has to precede repentance. Excuse me. Repentance has to precede, precede faith. Hebrews chapter 6, verse uh, 1. Uh, Therefore, leaving the principle of the doctrine of Christ, let us go into perfection, not laying in the foundation of repentance from dead work and faith toward God. Repentance in that context can't be ha- can't have anything to do with tears. In fact, the word repentance in the Greek is not an emotional word. It means a change of mind, a change of direction. Repentance is a change of mind, a change of direction. It is not how many tears you cry in an altar. Now that blows King Pentecostal theology right out of the water, doesn't it? That's why repentance doesn't work. That's why people come to the altar and they'll cry their eyes out and get up. Nothing's changed. Because there's no persuasion. There's no convincing. It's an emotional thing. It's an emotional thing. Receiving the Holy Ghost is not emotional. Receiving the Holy Ghost is a spiritual experience. But we've made it an emotional experience. We've made it something you feel and something instead of something you receive. Oh, Jesus. It's not my fault, it's your fault. I had to bring it down a gear. Okay? I got a couple more gears farther down. I can bring it if necessary. Because let me tell you something. When Paul blessed the people consistently with grace and peace from the Father, he was saying to you and I, I have no hope of pleasing God if I don't understand these two and if I cannot walk in them. These are not nebulous, theoretical concepts. They are scriptural practicality. They describe a daily lifestyle of spirituality. And they tell you what it is and tell you how it works. The words grace and peace describes true spirituality. And they tell you how to have it. That's how critical the two words are. You can't have true spirituality without an understanding and a walking in grace and without a lifestyle of peace. Can't have it. Let's, let's look at a verse here. First, first Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. Look at a couple of verses. First Corinthians 15, 9. Hallelujah. Praise God. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know what? How would you have liked to have been back then, where you had to sit on the same seat next to the guy that had some of your relatives put in jail and killed, who now is saved? You know what the Bible says is how they did that? Grace. Don't, don't go here. I'll just quote this. Luke chapter 6, when, Paul, when, when Jesus made this statement, He said, if you love them that love you, have, what thank have you? You know what that word thank in the Greek is? It's the Greek word charis, which is grace. 
When you, if you love them that love you, you have no evidence of grace working in your life. If you do good to them that do good to you, you have no evidence of grace working in your life. All three verses in that series, the word translated thank is grace. And those are evidences of grace working in my life. So here's Paul. He's persecuted the church. Now he's in the church. And then there are people who survived somehow that now fellowship with a man and have to call him Brother Saul who had some of their friends and relatives, maybe their husband, their wife, their kids, their parents, put in jail and executed. And now he's saved and claims to be one of them. What grace have you? So he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. I'm, not, I, I'm the least of the apostles, and this is the reason why. I persecuted the church. Next verse. Now listen to this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. It wasn't useless. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Now listen to this. Here's the caveat. Yet not I. But the grace of God which is in me, which was with me. Now, I got a question for you. How is it possible that the men that spent three plus years with Jesus every day would end up doing less than a man that wasn't in the presence of Jesus and actually persecuted the church and had to be saved in a traumatic event? How? Because those fellows were still tied to their religionist concepts. And this man, when he got saved on the road to Damascus, suddenly realized all of that religion he considered gain was lost. It was taken from him there. When the Lord pulled the scale back and said, Who do you think you're persecuting? Who do you think you're... Because it was religion that motivated him to persecute. And in my 63 years in Pentecost, it's always been the religionists who persecute those that follow the Spirit. And it's still so today. The traditional religionist. Listen to this. Listen, listen, listen. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not for naught. It was, wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty, useless, worthless, of no value. But I labored more abundantly than they all. I'm not behind any of them in works. I'm not behind any of them in revelation. No, in fact, the man that persecuted the church wrote over half the New Testament. How can that be? You mean the guys that heard him teach all that time had nothing more to say? No. The Lord is trying to make a point. I didn't walk with Jesus. I really can't relate with Peter or John. I never had the chance to sit and lay my head on his chest. I can't relate to that. I don't understand it. My hands never touched him. 
But the example of the New Testament believer is not Peter, James, and John. The example for the New Testament believer is the Apostle Paul. Because he came from where we came from. He came from a way off. He ain't never seen him. He ain't never touched him. He's never been there with him. The only experience he had with him was a personal spiritual experience. And he had to learn how to put all of that stuff aside that it stood between him and Jesus. So he says, I've laid more abundant than they all. Yet not I. Here it is. Listen to this. But the grace of God which was with me. Now, if the grace of God is nothing but divine favor, that's a really nice concept. What is it? A divine favor. Okay. What does it do? It's divine favor. So? See, the question I'm asking is, do you understand what I'm asking? Let's see. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What? Full of grace and truth. Now, we have, we, we have some folks among us that are not Trinitarians, but they're Duitarians, Duotarians, Twinitarians or something. They've divided God up into two persons. God of grace and God of truth, and they choose truth. I choose truth. I'm not taking that grace, that easy way stuff. I'm taking truth. I don't mean to be offensive, but you know how ignorant that is? I didn't say stupid. I said ignorant. That proves that whoever, whoever's making that statement and taking that stand, they don't have a clue. You can't divide Jesus, the, the God of Grace and the God of truth. There, we got a lot of guys today, guys among us, that they're so caught up on the grace side. They don't see how it fits with truth. So they're choosing grace and flushing truth down the toilet. And they're just as bad off. In fact, they're worse off. Because they're finding their answer intellectually and they're not getting their answer spiritually nor from the book. They're reading all this other junk out there that's been written and they think they're so much smarter than the rest of us. And they're more ignorant than the rest of us because of their ego makes them more ignorant. Woo! Praise God. I'm feeling a little cranked right now. i got to calm down here. Listen to this. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father. Full of, full of, full of. He wasn't just full of truth, brother. He was full of grace. He was full of grace and truth. Listen to the next verse. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that comes out is preferred for me because He was before me. Next verse. And of His... What was He full of? And of His... Fullness, have we all, we've received, what have we received? Grace, for grace, or the Greek is, in some translations, grace unto grace. Meaning, 
Grace is not a static nor a finite thing. In fact, like I said, Peter said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. And Peter closed his writings with, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace is not some ethereal concept that has no relevancy to my daily life. Neither is it a license to sin because God looks down on all us poor, pitiful failures of a human being and say, well, since you just can't get it right, I'm going to save you anyway. Hear me. Grace is unmerited, but it's never given unwarranted. I said grace may be unmerited favor, but it's never given unwarranted. I'll say that again. Grace may be unmerited favor, but it's never unwarranted. So it says, and of His fullness have we all received grace for grace. Next verse. For the law was given by Moses. That Greek word given means, he essentially it means he was the conduit of it. It didn't originate with him. He was just the vessel or the vehicle that got the law here. But listen to this one. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the word came there means to come into existence. Something that did not exist before is now in existence. Well, of course, grace and truth existed in heaven, but it didn't exist on earth. Oh, wait a minute, Brother Wright. The Old Testament says that Noah found grace, and you will find other places where the Bible talks about grace in the Old Testament. Well, whatever that grace was, it's not this grace. Because this grace came by or came into existence through Jesus Christ. So whatever Old Testament grace was, it it is something completely different than New Testament grace. So if if mercy is when God does not give you what you do deserve, then what's grace? Grace is when He does give you what you don't deserve. The unmerited part is only the condition. It's not what grace is. It's not what grace does. It's only the conditions under which it's given. Unmerited favor. So what is grace? What is grace? What in the world could grace be? Well, how about this one? Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start with verse 14 if you don't mind, brother. What could grace, what could grace be? What is it? Hebrews 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Next verse. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, in 1611 when King James was written, the double negative was was acceptable grammar. It is not acceptable grammar today. In fact, it confuses our little minds. does mine. So the grammatical rule of the double 
negative is, they cancel each other out and the statement becomes a positive statement. I am not changing the Word of God and I'm not doing disservice to the Word of God to eliminate the double negative. In fact, you won't really find... Well, most of the newer translations don't use the double negative because it is confusing. So here's the way it says without the double negative. For we have a high priest which can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Why? How can he be touched, moved by, stirred by our feelings of infirmity? Infirmity is weakness, inability. But was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let me tell you something. I have, again, been in Pentecost 63 years. I've had a lot, I've sat and heard a lot of guys preach to me. That if I was spiritual enough, I would never be tempted. And that if I was experiencing any kind of temptation, that there was something wrong with me spiritually. Well, I got good company and his name is Jesus Christ. And he wasn't just tempted a little bit. He was tempted in every possible way I could be tempted. In other words, when he hung on that cross, the reason he was willing to go through with it was he knew how hopeless it was for us to not make it. You know why? Because the law came by Moses. And the impetus or the, the empowerment to keep the law was nothing but fear. If you, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. You don't keep the law, you sin. Now you're guilty of death. Period. End of discussion. The only way you don't keep the law is fear. Nobody can be that afraid that much. And here's the problem, and you know it's true. The first time you sinned, and thunder didn't clap in heaven, and lightning burn you to a crisp, doubt comes in. That's the lie that the serpent told Eve. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. See? You didn't die. Immediately, that lie removes the only motivation for keeping law. Because there's no other ability to keep the law. Because the law was given to prove the weakness of flesh. That flesh cannot do right of itself. Now, i got to be honest with you again. 63 years in this. Both my parents and both my in-laws are all, were all ordained ministers. I'm supposed to be third or fourth generation Pentecost, whatever that means. As if God's got grandchildren, right? You know. So, I, I got to be honest with you. Again, I wasn't raised in one church. No pastor claimed me. When you're in a military family, pastors don't claim you because you're not around long enough. They're not going to make that kind of investment. Seriously, it's true. They're not going to invest in you. They'll take what you can give them while you're there, but they're not going to get too involved because you're on your way someplace else. So I, I was raised in church, but nobody claimed me. But let me tell you what they all did. They all preached the same thing. you got to do right to be right. 
That sounds good, doesn't it? If you want to be righteous, you've got to be righteous by doing what's right. Slight problem. That is so far from the New Testament, it's ridiculous. Oh, God. Mm, praise God, praise God, praise God. Do you know why that's true? Because the Bible says when you offend in one point of the law, you're guilty of all the law. And once you're guilty of any part of the law, you're guilty of all the law. And once you're guilty, you cannot now be made righteous by doing right after you've become guilty. Because the word righteous in the Greek means literally innocence. And you cannot restore the innocence of a guilty person by no, ma no matter how much right they do after they become guilty. There is not enough right you can do to change the guilt of a person who's offended the law to innocence. Oh, Jesus. I'm sweating. Are you sweating? Brother Bowyer asked me earlier, he said, is it, are you warm or hot in here? I said, well, at least we're not laid to see and we're, we're probably one or the other. I didn't want to admit at the time I was fairly comfortable, but I'm, Brother Bowyer, it's, I'm safe because I'm hot. See, in, the, in my te all the teaching I got in the United Pentecostal Church, you're supposed to be holy instantaneously, but you work to be righteous. Slight problem. In the Bible, it's exactly the opposite of that. Romans 5.17 that says that righteousness is a gift. And that your faith is accounted or accredited as righteousness. But holiness is a process. If I ask you to raise your hand and say, how many of you are really believe you're holy today? Every person raise your hand and be lying. Because holiness is a moving target. It, it just takes more time when I have to give you all the evidence. So let's go. Second Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the external appearance. Perfecting, which is a participle, means continuous action, process. Holiness and the fear of God. Of course, I misquoted it, didn't I? Because we, we never ever preach about that other part. That's why some folks who consider themselves holiness folks have the worst attitude going. Because if you're really into holiness, you're perfecting both your spirit and your flesh in the fear of God. But it is a process. It is not an event. I can't look at your sleeve length or, 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 or your hair length and say you're more holy or I'm more holy than you. Not only that, the Bible says you can't be holy till you're first righteous. Uh, I, I can't... Quoted off the top of my head. I don't remember chapter first, but Paul talked about laying aside the, the, the old man, putting on new man, so that we can have righteousness unto true holiness. Righteousness is unto holiness. If you don't have the foundation right, you can't have the house right. 
If holiness is a house, you don't have the righteous right. That's the foundation. You don't have holiness. You don't have holiness. I don't care what your standards are. You don't have holiness if you don't have first righteousness. And if you're still trying to be right by doing right, you don't have righteousness. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. <laughs> Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. You know what that word says right there? Process. Because change is a function of time. There is no event that changes. Change is a process. And change is a function of time. That's right. The the old Sunday school song, He's still working on me. He's still working on me. Well, let me tell you something. If He's working on me, and I believe He's still working on you, then how do I get into comparing each other and judging who's more spiritual or who's more holy when He's still working on me and still working on you and hopefully neither one of us are the finished product. Ain't any of us the finished product. I'm not the finished product. God have mercy. I'm not what I'm going to be. I'm not what He planned me to be. Neither are you. You can't have righteousness without grace. I'm glad you asked. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, being justified. You see that word justified? Justified is etymologically in the same exact Greek family of Greek words as right, righteous, righteousness. Just, justify, justification. All of those words are from the same family. They're talking about the same thing. Justification is the process. Righteousness is the product. Sanctification, sanctify, sanctification are in the same family of words etymologically as holy and holiness. So sanctification is the process. Holiness is the product. So it says, therefore being justified by faith. Here's tomorrow's subject. We have peace with God. I can't have peace with God till I'm first justified by faith. Justification produces righteousness. So therefore, it is my faith that's accounted as righteousness. And my faith is not an emotional thing. It's a mental and spiritual thing. Because I become convinced He is God. He loves me. He died for me. And I believe it. Settled. Finished. Period. No question. And that certainty, that absolute persuasion I have, which gives that absolute credence to everything He says, because He's God and I'm certain of it, that faith is then accredited as righteousness. Why? Because righteousness, the root idea of righteousness is innocence. And as a guilty person, I can't become innocence. That somebody gives me their innocence as a gift. 
You know some people that can't, they can't forgive other people their offenses? They're proving they don't, have a, they don't have a clue what all this is about. Because if I'm not righteous except by a gift from God, and I know that my righteousness I got by gift, not by my works, and, and, you, and you're not righteous except by the same way, if I offend you or you forgive for offend me, well, I have to forgive each other because we have to forgive each other because we're all in the same boat. And that's the reason Jesus said, if you don't forgive those that offend you, I'm not going to forgive your sins. Because how can I receive forgiveness of sins if I don't have faith and I can't be justified? And in Sunday school they taught us justification is just as if you'd never done it. Literally, the Lord expects you to let Him make you righteous with His own righteousness so that you act like you never, ever did those things before. Huh? Hallelujah. Isaiah 61 and 10 says, I, I'm going to come back here, brother, if you can kind of hang on to that one. Just hang on to that and I'll quote these others. Isaiah 61 and 10 talks about the Lord giving us a robe of righteousness. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the only way God could not take their lives, because he said the soul of the sinner should surely die, some innocent one had to die in their place. We know by typology, he must have taken the lives of some sheep and made coats of skins. So, let me tell you something. Righteousness is so important that the lives that were taken and the blood that was shed to produce the skins to get the coats were secondary. They were just the process to get there. I'm not, un, I'm not diminishing the blood of Jesus. But the blood of Jesus is supposed to make you righteous. And if you don't believe you're right in the sight of God because of what He did, not because of what you do, then you don't have righteousness. Oh, Jesus, help us. Help us. Years ago, <laughs> I didn't know Brother Barnes, but I'd heard about Brother Barnes, and I got a flyer in the mail saying that they were going to make some of his tapes available. And I was a young preacher. It was the late 70s, and I sent off and got every tape available. I ordered every one of them, and I listened to those tapes and listened to those tapes and listened to those tapes. I, I, was, I was hungry for the things of God, and I knew the Word of God says... Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So I knew there was no ability I had to build a church. If I was going to be built, it's going to be built by the Spirit. And I didn't know how to do that. So I'm trying to get everything I could. So I got so frustrated one night, I, I, I said, I'm just going to call him myself. I got the manual out, found his home number. I look back on that. That's pretty presumptuous of me, but I did it anyway. That's how hungry and desperate I was. I called him on the phone. I said, Brother Barnes, I'm so-and-so. And yes, sir, brother. And I, I got a question for I, I, I'd like. I've been listening to your tapes and, and, and whatever. And he starts talking about the blood. I got mad. I'm serious as I can be. I got mad. I'm thinking to myself, if you don't want to give me any inside secrets, won't you just tell me? I called you for inside information. I thought, you, I, thought I could talk to you and you'd give me some... Some pointers on how to be used in the Spirit. And you want to talk about the blood? I know about the blood! But when I stopped fuming and started listening, I found out I didn't know anything about the blood. 
Because he said any man that's going to be used of God in the Spirit must have a foundation of the blood of Jesus Christ in his life because the adversary is going to try to undermine your faith when God starts talking and starts trying to move. And if you don't have confidence in his blood, you're not going to let God use you. It's not going to work because it's not going to be based on your persona, your personality, your charisma. It's going to work because of who he is. And he's using this old dirty earthen vessel. This old failure of an earthen vessel. This old earthen vessel that no matter how hard I try, I can't get it right. And how in the world can I ever believe the eternal God would use somebody like me? The blood The blood. It's the only way. Is the blood. There's no other way but the blood. I have to be able to receive that blood. I have to be able to believe that blood. Because that blood justifies. It cleanses. Oh Jesus. I knew it was bad. I haven't even got to the point yet. This is still the introduction. I wish I was trying to be funny. I really, I do. I'm not. This is only the foundation. It's not even the subject. Let me give you a verse that summarizes as well as possible as I can what grace is. Philippians 2.13 For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of those things that please Him. If you've got any desire at all from God, you can't take one bit of credit for it. The word worketh there is a beautiful word in the Greek. I love it. It's the Greek word energeo, which, which we get the word energy or energize from. And it means to activate, to operate, to cause to become operative. It is God that puts thelema, wish, want, or desire, to will, to wish, want, or desire. It's God that activates in you and I the desire, the wish, want, or desire to please God. So if I have any desire to please God... That activation of the will is grace. That's what grace does. Because I can't do that myself. So grace is doing it. And then, it's God works in you to do of His good pleasure. And the Greek word do there is the noun, the verb form of the noun dunamis, which we translate power. It's supernatural ability to do what you cannot do on your own. So it is God that activates in you the desire to please Him. Then it's God it's in you that activates in you a supernatural ability to allow you to please Him. It's God that does that. God does that. Not me. Paul said it this way, how can you boast if everything you've got you received? How do you boast about that? How can I boast about something that I have received. 
I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. I received it. Hear me. Let me tell you something I found this morning. The root word for every Greek word, every Greek word that I found in my limited amount of time to study this morning, that is translated thanks, thanksgiving, give thanks, the root word is charis, which is grace. You cannot separate a real understanding and the operation of grace in a person's life from the thankfulness it produces because thankfulness proves I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, but He's doing it through me and anything that's happening through me, He's doing it and deserves all of the credit and the proof that I believe He deserves all the credit is I profusely thank Him. Thanks. Thank you, Father. 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 Now, how could it be that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ? Because New Testament grace is the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, which is the empowerment. Because the Holy Ghost is also called the Spirit of Grace. So no one who has received, who has not received the baptism of the Holy Ghost has New Testament grace in their life. Nobody, nobody who has yet received, yet to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost has New Testament grace working in their lives. Because that's the difference. How was Jesus tempted in all points yet without sin? He was a human being. If he could be tempted, he could have sinned. You, you can't be tempted if you can't sin. He was tempted in all points, yet he didn't fall. He didn't sin. How? Because grace came by Jesus Christ. He, had, he was the first human being that had this presence of God dwelling in him like that. That was the spirit of grace. And so he learned to let grace work through him. And that's what the Son of God says. The Son can do nothing of himself. How much are we trying to do of ourselves for God? How much are we trying to live for God? How much are we trying to be right by doing right? All of that is a denial of grace. I've got to obey the Word of God to go to heaven. But I cannot obey the Word of God through flesh, because if flesh could have obeyed the Word of God without the operation of grace, the Spirit of God working in me, the Old Testament would have worked. But the Old Testament didn't work because flesh can't do right through its own ability. That's why God was so merciful to those people. And Old Testament mercy was the key. That's how they were saved, by mercy. But you and I are saved by grace. Because mercy only deals with your past. Grace deals with your future. Your present and your future. Grace is the ability God gives me to do today what pleases Him. Anytime I fail, it's because I trusted me 
and not his spirit to do the work through me. Anytime I fail, anytime I fail, it was me trusting his, myself to do what's pleasing to him rather than letting him do it through me. Because when the man Christ Jesus, though he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, when he let grace operate fully, he never fell. And the Bible says that grace is able to keep me and you from falling. I wish we believed that. So, I'm going to close with this, I think. I'm trying. Brother Morgan, I'm trying. Hebrews 4.14, quickly here. We have a high priest. Actually, 15. We have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And what does the next verse say? Verse 16. Therefore, we come boldly before the throne of grace. Is that what it says? 16, yeah. Therefore, or let us therefore, let us. It's your decision. It's your choice. Let us. That means it's your decision. Let us therefore come boldly with confidence. The word boldly in the Greek means with confidence. Not crawl on your hands and knees begging. I'm a child of God. He expects me to come with confidence before the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it was a mercy seat. In the New Testament, it's a throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it's a mercy seat. In the New Testament, it's a throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly before the, unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. You can't have grace till you first receive mercy. That's why the folks that make grace a license to sin that say it doesn't matter because grace teaches us according to Titus. That denying ungodliness in the world unless we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present world, present world. There's no way to make grace a license to sin. There's no way to say it's okay to live, to, to claim to be a Christian and have no change in your life because if grace is working, there's going to be change working. There's no way. Biblically, by definition, it's impossible to believe a person is saved by grace and there's no change in their life. But we've got guys involved with the relevancy movement in our, in our movement. That's exactly what they're preaching. Well, the grace of God's going to save you. You, don't, not, you just come as you are. But one guy in my district made the statement. He said, if they're homosexuals, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. They'll have to get that from God himself. I'll use them, quote, unquote. I got it in an email. Yeah. Now you talk about perversion. That's a spirit of perversion. There ain't no truth in that. So, it says that we may obtain mercy. The word obtain, there's the same Greek word as in Acts 2.38 for receiving the Holy Ghost. In other words, the word lambano means to take what is offered. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. I receive it. It's a gift. I have to receive it. I have to take it. It's offered. I don't have to do anything to get it, but take it. He did it all. He hung on the cross. He died. He shed his blood. He was, he was buried. He was resurrected so that mercy is available to me at any moment, any time, any place. All I have to do is take it. But that's the foundation for grace. If I'm not participating in mercy, I cannot have grace. But this is different. 
That we may obtain mercy and find grace. The Greek word for find is not the one that's obtained. The word find there means I've got to want it enough to pursue it. Why? Because it's fine grace to help. Now, I don't know why the King James Version guys did this. I don't know. But if you go to any interlinear, you'll find that the, ver- the, the Greek word translated to help is not a, ver- a verb. It's a noun. It's not a verb. It's a noun. And the reason they translated it like this is because they didn't have any revelation of it themselves. And it didn't make sense to them to translate it and find grace help. So they changed the word of God and clouded the issue. Because grace doesn't help me do anything. As 1 Corinthians 15.10 said, Paul said, it was, I did more than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was grace that did it. Grace help is not me asking God to help me do anything. Grace help is when I get out of the way, give up on me, and let God do it through me so that the one doing it gets all the credit and all the glory. All the credit and all the glory. I come boldly for that. He's waiting on me. But I've got to demonstrate I want it. In other words, I can't say, oh, Lord, I want grace. You know why? Because to have grace operating on me, in me, through me, i got to give up on me. Hear me. 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to come back to this tomorrow, but I'm going to use this as my bridge. 1 Corinthians 12. Paul had a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. There was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. The word give there in the Greek is didomai. It means to give a gift. The thorn in the flesh was given by God. It was a messenger, and the word messenger in the Greek is spirit. It was a spirit of Satan sent to buffet me or to beat me with the fists. It was given to me. But I didn't didn't like that gift, Paul said. So I prayed three times. For God to take his gift back. Because I didn't like getting beat up. And the Lord said, this was the Lord's response. No. Because my grace is enough. And the Greek literally is, my grace has enough power to help you to overcome anything. Therefore, I'm not going to take this away from you because I sent this to keep you saved. I sent this to keep you reminded. You can't do this yourself. You didn't get these revelations on your own because your intelligence or your goodness, I gave them as a gift. And all this stuff that's been done through you, you didn't do any of it. It was me doing it. And I've sent these these spirits from Satan to beat you up on a regular basis to keep you reminded Paul, just how much you need me. Now, if you don't really love the purpose of God, if you're all into the flashy signs of religious success, and you don't love the purpose of God, 
and you're not passionate about the plan of God, and you're not committed to the kingdom of God, then all of this is a price way too high to pay. And that's exactly what's happened in the religious world today, including in our movement. Men who want the kingdom without the cross. They want the crowds without being a grain of wheat that falls in the ground and die. They're not willing to live like that. Hear me right now. Any methodology to grow your church that is attempting to bypass except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. It's from the, it's from the pits of hell. It is not from God. God does not bypass the cross to give you what He wants to give you. In fact, the only way to get what He wants you to have is through the cross. In fact, He made the statement, If any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Luke says, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to see God's glory manifested, you got to be willing to be dead and your life hid with Christ and God. You've got to be willing to be decreased so that He can increase. You've got to be willing to lose all the trappings of success so that He gets all the credit. Don't... My, 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 I told you yesterday, I was, I'm a home missionary. I see myself as a home missionary. But that's, that's who I am. I'm a home missionary. Do not get frustrated at what appears to be the success of others. Because you hear me. It's really a matter of timing. It's not a matter of personality. God's got a time. Hear me. I believe this with everything in me. God's got a time. And the children of the son of promise is going to be far greater than the children of the son of flesh. Yeah. Right now, it looks like the children of the son of, the, of flesh are winning. But it's only a matter of time. When the time of... Acts 17, 7, or 7, 17. When the time of the promise drew nigh. When the fullness of time has come. Don't believe the lie that the reason your crowd is small is because you don't have the goods. Yeah, you can have some growth. But everything God's doing right now in true apostolic churches is He's saving the laborers for the coming harvest. This is not the harvest. This is only the laborers. That's why it's so important for you to teach as I taught yesterday and determine who's going to be the laborers, who's going to commit, who's going to prepare themselves. Because right now, all God is doing in, in true apostolic churches is saving laborers, people that are willing to put the kingdom first. When he said, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself. That word deny doesn't mean say no to self. It means to renounce ownership of. The Lord is looking for people for this last days that's willing to 
give up the title deed of ownership to themselves and acknowledge that they don't belong to themselves. They belong to Jesus Christ. Take the cross while He prepares us to become laborers in His field. We are not having a harvest anywhere in the world at this time. We are only reaching laborers. The harvest is yet to come. Do not sell your soul and do not prostitute your ministry for, for momentary numbers. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself and your people. The harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. Let's stand. Come on. Jesus, by your grace... By your grace, not through any ability of my own, but Jesus, by your grace, I submit to your spirit, I submit to your grace, whatever you've got to do, Father, prepare me to be a part of the coming harvest. Prepare me, Father. Prepare me. Prepare me. Come on, let's go a little farther. I know I've gone longer. I've gone longer than I plan to be by a long shot. Come on. Come on, come on, just a few more minutes here. Come on, come on, come on. In the name of Jesus, 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 in the name of Jesus. Come on. Come on. That's what you're here for. Is the Lord reminding you of what this is really all about? It's not about your success. It's about His plan. It's about His kingdom. It's about His purpose. It's about submitting to His Word. It's about submitting to His Spirit. It's about giving ourselves over to His grace that we might be able to be willing vessels and usable instruments in His harvest, the end-time harvest that's coming to this world. I thank God for everything that's happening today. Everything that's going on in this world right now. But all of this is prelude. None of this is what He's promised. All of it is prelude to the promise. That's what the man of God preached last night. Preparing for a promise. We're preparing for the promise. Come on, one more time. The Holy Ghost is trying to do something here right now. Come on, this is between you and the Lord. This is between you and Jesus. This is between you and Jesus. This is between you and Jesus. The question is, are you going to be in the stands or are you going to be on the field when the time of the promise draws nigh? Are you going to be in the stands watching because you weren't willing to pay the price? You weren't willing to lay it all down and say, not my will, not my way, but yours be done. Not my strength, not my ability, not my goodness. Not my worthiness. But all the thanks belongs to you, Jesus, because of who you are. Come on, one more minute. I, 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 know, I know I've gone long, but one more minute. Come on. Come on. Come on, the Holy Ghost is doing something here right now. One more minute. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Come on. Come on, let, let the Lord help you right now. Let the Lord talk to you right now. 
let the Spirit of God do a work in your life. The Bible says, Jesus, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Even the Lord Jesus Christ couldn't give Himself to be crucified without the aid of the Spirit. That's what grace does. Grace helps me to put God way ahead of me so that whatever God brings in my life is okay with me so that He can prepare me however He wants to prepare me. I'm going to say this to every person in this place that's got hair that looks like mine. I know you think you're looking for a place to retire. You know, that you're winding it all down. You hear me some, Hear me right now. The young men are very important these last days. But some of the mightiest stuff God's going to do is going to be done through those with no hair or that gray hair. Because, because of your scars. You've already got the scars. It says, this isn't me. And I don't dare take the credit. It's not me. I don't dare take the credit. Reach over let's pray for somebody right now. On each side of us. Brother Brother Dylan, I apologize. I'm trying to obey God here. Come on. Come on. We're not in this alone. We're in this together. Come on. Together. We're in this together. We're in this together. It's one body. It's one body. With one head. With one plan. With one purpose. For the sake of one kingdom. To the glory of one name. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 I believe in authority and I'm submitted to authority and I'm not trying in any way to, to be, to be something I, to do something I shouldn't do here, but God is trying to do something here right now. Come on. Come on. You're all ready to go to the next thing. The Holy Ghost is trying to do something here right now. Come on. The Lord is talking to some of us to quit fighting the cross. To quit resenting the cross. To quit trying to avoid the cross. Oh, Jesus. 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 Jesus.